Hey there, and welcome to Filmatic. The only podcast still available on Spotify with less than seven recurring listeners. Before we begin our fifth show, I'd like to thank our very small base for their continued support and extend my gratitude. Today we talk about the latest film from, in my humble opinion, one of the greatest directors working today, Ryan Johnson. And that movie is the electrically charged and genre rejuvenating Knives Out. His last assignment was in the galaxy far, far away, incensing overprotective fans with a space opera that dared to toss over its shoulders some sacred Jedi business, along with our assumptions, without withholding any of the requisite lightsaber dogfighting spectacle. Here, toying with the rules only fortifies the mystery. What better way to keep us guessing than to shuffle the standard protocol of an unfurling investigation? Before we get there, in place of movie news this week due to lack thereof, I'd just like to start with the review with a little background and some opinion in the section of the review I'll call In Defense of Ryan Johnson. For those who may not be aware, Ryan Johnson is an extremely talented director, his career spanning original ideas with immaculate technical finesse, from Brick to Looper. He also directed what are widely considered some of the best episodes of Breaking Bad, and furthermore, best episodes on TV. Enter Disney, buying Lucasfilm in 2013 for literally $6 billion. And of course, soon after, we were announced that a sequel trilogy was in the works, and with a twist, with three different set directors attached to their respective movies from the get-go. The first film, The Force Awakens, was set to be directed by the very safe choice, people-pleaser, and Star Trek rebooter, J.J. Abrams. The movie came out and of course made a buttload of money, and fans were overall pleased. But in my opinion, re-skinning A New Hope without utilizing any new film techniques or practices, and solely relying on audience nostalgia for not only the same plot points, but for the same film itself, is not a movie I'd consider a win. This, I believe, shows that this sequel trilogy was completely unnecessary from the start and a disservice to the franchise overall, similar to the prequels, but in in a few different ways. Now comes the brilliant director, Ryan Johnson, come to claim his part of this new franchise. And guess what? All in all, in my opinion, I'd say he delivered. He brought something different to a Star Wars movie. Johnson deploys narrative and visual tricks that hadn't really popped up in a Star Wars film before, along with his classic, precise frames and tight technical craft, and a particular attention to emotional continuity. There's also a welcome preoccupation with collateral damage, both physical and emotional. And I'm not saying this is even a perfect movie. Certain beats here are sometimes actively clumsy, there's some serious tonal whiplash, and pacing stutters. But all of this positive and negative adds up to a genuinely idiosyncratic, maybe even auteurist work. Johnson may be the first guy since 1977 to make a Star Wars movie feel like a personal one. I'm gonna leave it at that for now, but uh, who knows, maybe the Last Jedi episode is in the works, we'll see. As it would turn out, some fans were really not inspired by Johnson's take on Star Wars, and this led to serious backlash and internet hate, with a slew of death threats and online hatred coming to Johnson, as well as Kelly Marie Tran, an actress who portrayed a new character named Rose. Following this backlash, what did Disney do? Not stand with its director. They immediately fired Colin Trevorrow of Jurassic World, who was attached to direct the next episode, and plugged Abrams back in for damage control. Now, I've read the very reliable source that leaked the script for the next movie because I honestly could not care less anymore, and I can say without any spoilers that through this movie I'm seeing that the state of Star Wars is pretty sad. Disney is now trying to bring the fans back by using Abrams and reutilizing dead plot points and old characters for draw the movie theaters. But at the same time, this new plot completely invalidates all the movies that came before it, making the sacrifices of Luke and Vader, etc. originally for purely nothing. As of right now, the state of Ryan Johnson's promised trilogy of his own is in the air. So what does the director do after facing that kind of hatred, backlash, and being displayed on the grand world stage of cinema with one of the biggest franchises of all time? Well, 
he goes back to his roots. Almost two years after The Last Jedi, Ryan Johnson has returned to glory with the genre-bending, star-studded, and immaculately written Knives Out. I'll delve into spoilers later, so have no fear for those who haven't seen it yet. And if you haven't, please do, as not only is it an amazing film, but support for original films like this go a long way. The setting is a gothic pile in modern-day New England where crime writer Harlan Thrombey, played by Christopher Plummer, has recently capped his 85th birthday celebrations by dying dramatically in his attic study. It looks like an open-and-shut suicide, but could one of Harlan's variously leechy family members have slit his throat? After all, the old man spent the evening settling old scores and cleaning house. Perhaps Black Sheep Ransom, Chris Evans, oozing privilege, did it. He was heard arguing with his grandfather that night. Or what about the ever-so-slightly-sniveling Walt, Michael Shannon playing against his type, whose publishing fortune depended on his father's faltering favor? Then there's son-in-law Richard, played by Don Johnson, and widowed lifestyle guru Joni, played by Tony Collette, both of whom who had access to grind. Only Harlan's nursing carer, Marta, played by Anna D'Armas, appears with suspicion. She's blessed with a regurgitative reaction to mistruths, as it's said in the film, that makes her vomit when lying. As for eldest daughter Linda, played by Jamie Lee Curtis, in career best form, she can't help thinking about death as games and quote waiting for the big reveal helping to divide the nature of harlan's manner of death is gentleman sleuth benoit blanc a cigar smoking coin flipping interloper played with an outrageous southern u.s accent by daniel craig blanc describes himself as a passive observer of the truth but a web of intrigue surrounds his own presence at the party who hired him and what for when he opens his mouth outspill metaphors and folksy aphorisms and eloquent turns of phrase all delivered in an accent another character accurately pegs as decidedly foghorn leghorn blanc can work a room but there are times when he seems to be speaking past everyone in it to himself but also maybe a case in tracing its internal logic to the, quote, terminus of gravity's rainbow, until the undeniable truth simply reveals itself. It sounds an awful lot like advice, frankly, because when you're watching a movie as intricately plotted, fiendishly clever, and confidently engineered as this one, maybe it's best to leave the detective work to the professionals. The truth, as Blanc puts it, will reveal itself with time. It knives out, some truths reveal themselves faster than others, and much faster than expected. And that's part of the film's naughty, head-spinning charm. From case open to closed, this may be the year's purest blast of Hollywood fun, and almost absurdly satisfying mystery yarn, rippling with suspense, humming with humor, and populated by a bunch of stars having an absolute ball bringing to life the game pieces on a giant clue board. Yet the movie is also simultaneously a whip-smart subversion, an unpredictable in structure as it is in resolution. Such tightrope acts are fast becoming a specialty of writer-director Ryan Johnson. Johnson introduces these suspects in a hilarious, cross-cutting interrogation set piece. He also lays out the layout of the manor, the timeline of Harlan's 85th birthday party, and the tangled web of motives. Whole pages of exposition brilliantly masked by the screwball zing of his editing and dialogue. The audience is left primed to play armchair detective alongside Blanc, but just as quickly as he arranges the pieces on the board, Johnson scatters them, dropping a reveal that seems to change the games just as much as we've learned its rules. It's a trick Knives Out will pull again and again, reinventing itself on the fly, throwing curveballs of new information, even complicating our desire to see the case solved. Johnson has the uncanny ability to indulge and upend a cliche at once. There is, for instance, a car chase that ends with an inspired acknowledgement of its pointlessness. That's about as much of the genius at play I can get without spoilers, so if you have not, please go see this movie, and spoilers are ahead. Johnson's story is a clever bait and switch, revealing that Harlan died after his beloved nurse Marta accidentally injected him with a lethal dose of morphine during his usual nighttime medical routine. The dose is so high that Harlan will be dead in just 10 minutes. He thinks quickly staging the scene to make it look like a suicide, and giving Marta very specific instructions as to not incriminate herself. Why? Because he loves Marta like his own daughter, and has decided to leave everything in his will to her. Then, he slits his own throat. It's a bloody twist, but Johnson's decisions to show the death early on is the first of many surprising turns. 
plunging the viewer into a fresh mystery. As the story progresses, it's revealed that Ransom is the one who hired Benoit. Why? Because he got cut out of the will, of course, and wants to frame Marta for his grandfather's death, forcing her to forfeit the fortune. So he secretly switches the labels on Harlan's medicine, prompting the lethal injection. However, as Benoit later discovers, Marta is so good at her job that she instinctively gave Harlan the right injection, because she can tell the difference between the extremely similar looking medications. Sadly, this means that when Harlan died, he actually had been given the right medicine. What ensues is a masterful dispelling of exposition through Benoit, in peak Agatha Christie fashion, and a fun little twist at the end including obviously the fake knife. What works best in this movie is the balance through writing, staying with the rules of creaky old house genre, but making just enough adjustments to stay clear of story trouble. Because story trouble isn't uncommon in a film like this. There's only so long it's fun to watch people accuse each other while clues accumulate and red herrings fly before you start to want something to happen, something to be revealed. In Knives Out, there's just not one information dump. There are several. The twists are plentiful enough that even if some ungenerous person tried to spoil the film for you, they couldn't really. You'd still be missing chapters upon chapters of necessary information. If it seems to you that this film has much in common with Clue, Johnson knows it, you feel echoes of murder she wrote. He knows. You think Craig sounds like Foghorn Leghorn? Yeah, Johnson knows that too. Self-aware but not self-conscious, Knives Out acknowledges its depths to the trappings of mystery and frolics in them like a field of clover. At the same time, touches of its contemporary consciousness drive the story. Marta is, quote, the help to many of the thrombies, and the family treats her with a sharply observed combination of affection, condescension, and dismissal, provided she stays in what they consider her place. Given how big the other performances are, the Armas and her work here, which has both comedy and stillness, could not have been, could have been swallowed up, but they aren't at all. She's often the most compelling person in the story, even as she's doing the least, not hard when everyone else is, as they say, doing the most. It is always a delight to see someone joyfully, efficiently, and indelibly demolish any alleged hard barrier between art and entertainment. Knives Out is Ryan Johnson's salute to mysteries, but it is also his latest demonstration of his uncommon mastery of the idea that you can, that you should, artfully entertain an audience with loving attention to detail. That is just as high a purpose as to artfully devastate or confound them. It's one of the best movies of the year, and one of the most purely enjoyable as well. My name is Nabil Sharif, and you've been listening to Filmatic. On the next episode of Filmatic, we discuss The Irishman, now available on Netflix from Martin Scorsese. Remember to follow at Filmatic Podcast on Instagram. See you next time.